Good morning, Palace family. Truly, right now, the Spirit of the Lord is in this church, and I am just trusting by the Spirit that we are unified in our worship and our praise of the Lord today. Truly, we are one in spirit. Wherever you find yourself, whether you are at home on your computer, whether you are somewhere else, on social media, on your phone, viewing the different social media types, truly, we are in one spirit today. It is so good to be in the house of the Lord for myself. It's going to be so good to be together with you next Sunday. I am excited about what the Lord is going to do, what the Lord is going to speak to us. We're going to be here together on Mother's Day. And of course, we encourage you to abide by any kind of regulations that are put in place for your own safety. Uh, But it's going to be so good to be back together. I miss you. I know Pastor Miller misses you. I know Pastor West and the staff, they miss you. They love you. I miss you. I love seeing your faces. As you can see, Pastor Miller is not preaching this morning. Uh, Many of you already know uh, that his granddaughter, Audrey Miller, was involved in an accident yesterday. And a very, very serious accident. And she was uh, airlifted to Children's Hospital in St. Louis due to an injury that she had from a bicycle accident, very serious. Um, I'm not going to go into all the detail. Most of it is already on social media right now if you want to investigate that yourself. But I will tell you that we got the report this morning. She had to have surgery. And we thank God that the surgery was a success. God answered prayer. God is on the move. In fact, Audrey is talking. She is doing well this morning. And so we're just trusting God that he's going to keep his hand of healing upon her. That's where Pastor Miller is and Pastor West. And it's just an honor and a privilege of mine to be able to step into this awesome pulpit of this church and be able to deliver the Word of God to you this morning. I do feel in my spirit that I have a Word of the Lord for this church. But before we do that, I want us to open up in prayer. And we're going to pray for Audrey, her continued healing, and for this Word this morning. Father, we come to you unified. Wherever this body of believers finds themselves now, we are unified in prayer. Father, we speak healing into Audrey Miller's body. Already, God, you have done a work. The surgery has been a success. And now, God, we pray for complete and total healing in her body. We pray, God, that you would be with Ben and Sophie, that you'd be with Jimmy and Brittany, God, as they are there to try and care for her and nurture her, Lord. We pray that you would give them strength. We pray that you would give the rest of the family strength, God, in this time of need. It just seems like, God, that we are living in a a, a time when the devil has just assaulted us. But, God, the good news is you have overcome. You have overcome the world. You are our hope. You are our redemption. God, we put our hope and we put our faith and we put our trust in you, Jesus. God, we speak that into her, into her being, into her body. Father, I pray for this word this morning as well, God, that as I bring it, God, that wherever your people find themselves, that they would be open and receptive to your word, God, that their hearts, that their minds, that their lives would be changed by the word of God. Holy Spirit, right now, in the name of Jesus, we invite you to move into people's homes. Right through the social media, God, grip their hearts, grip their minds, let them be attentive to what it is that you want to speak to your precious people this morning. God, we love you. We honor you and we cherish you in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus Christ. And I'm just trusting and believing that where you find yourself this morning, you're saying out loud a mighty amen. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to one verse of Scripture. It's found in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 1. And as I said just a moment ago, I really do feel that this is a word of the Lord in season for our church and for Christians all over. This is a word of the Lord. Again, Isaiah 64 and verse 1. And it says, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence. I'm going to use this text as somewhat of a theme text Uh, for several chapters in the Bible. I'm I'm not going to be preaching on and going over multiple chapters in the Bible, but suffice to say that when you look in the book of Isaiah, 
roughly from about chapter 58 all the way through chapter 66, those several chapters there, this verse that I just read to you is what I would consider to be the theme of those chapters. And it's a thought in Isaiah that can be summarized in that one statement that Isaiah just gave, if only you would come down. If only you would come down. This is the heart's cry of so many people in God's church all across this region, this state, this nation, this world even. If only you would come down. This has been the heart's cry. And saints and sinners alike are turning to God like they never have before. In fact, Christians, blood-bought saints of God are as pastor in the commercial earlier gave, he is, he is asking people to turn to the Lord in a time of heartfelt uh, confession and repentance unto God to get rid of all of the filth and, and, and the junk in their lives and confess to God and repent and turn. And that's the heart of the Christian. Christians are sanctifying themselves and consecrating themselves to the Lord. And even, even those that are unsaved are coming to a saving knowledge and saving faith in Jesus Christ. They too are turning to the Lord and in their heart of hearts, I believe that there is a theme in the hearts of so many Christians and it is, if only you would come down, God. I heard a testimony of a young atheist, lesbian woman who made a post um, on one of the social media outlets the other day where she declared that for the first time in her life, she was starting to watch church services and listen to Christian preachers. She testified of the fact. So God is getting people's hearts. He is getting their attention through this crisis that we are going through. Not just in our region, but truly worldwide. This is a worldwide crisis. And God is using this to get people's attention. And instead of these cries coming from some kind of a superficial or surface level uh, outcry, so many, including many who I'm preaching to right now, they are facing things in their lives that they never even imagined. And for many of them, they're not just facing one incredible hardship, but multiple hardships on so many different levels. People are facing financial problems that never thought they would face a financial problem. They thought they were secure. They thought they had plenty of money to to put back to help get them through a crisis, but they're finding themselves in financial crisis. We see people that are enduring health problems compounded by the whole COVID-19 fear. We see people that are being furloughed and laid off and losing their jobs, just outright being fired in this time. There is fear and panic and anxiety as a result of this pandemic and, and all of these things that are going on. And maybe for some of you, it's just one thing that you are struggling with, but the Lord showed me that many people are enduring and are struggling with multiple things on multiple levels. And so in this context that we find ourselves, these habits of, that people have of, of weak, anemic prayers, they are now, because of the crisis we find ourselves in, they are now turning to the Lord in passionate, fiery, heartfelt, desperate cries of prayer, such as Isaiah prayed, if only you would come down, God. If only you would come down and, and, and show yourself strong in this time. If only, God, you would take a review of everything going on in our lives, God. If only you would come down. That has been the cry of so many people over the last several weeks. This passage in Isaiah 64, it's on the heels of a prophetic vision, so to speak, that Isaiah had of the future of Israel. He saw that Israel would, Babylon would be coming in and that they would be taking them captive and that Babylon would be destroying homes, that they would be laying waste to the land and that they would be putting the people in slavery and in many instances carrying them off back to Babylon and and, and then there was also a point in time in these chapters, if you will look, that finally Isaiah was prophetically seeing in the future a time when God's people would be longing to return back home. And that's a, that's a, a, a taste, that's a foretaste of them longing to return back to the Lord. Ultimately, in later chapters, you would see where Israel did return home. And I really believe in this passage 
in these chapters that I mentioned earlier, that it is a spiritual parallel of our nation right now. We as a nation that was built upon biblical principles, that was built upon a biblical foundation and values where we honored God, we have strayed from the Lord. There's no doubt about it. We, multiple messages and countless messages have been preached on such topic, but it is absolutely true. Don't turn a deaf ear to that. We are finally at a place where we're seeing that God is, is beginning to rectify the situation. And we are living in a time of grace. Believe it or not, what we are encountering right now through this COVID lockdown, it is a time of grace where, where we have been on a parallel with Israel's turn from the Lord. But now God is bringing us by His grace, His hard grace, His hard mercy. He is returning people back to Himself. And thank God for the return. Thank God for redemption. But understand that it is not something to be treated lightly. The cross of Christ was a costly, expensive thing. It bankrupted heaven. It bankrupted heaven. And the cross of Christ was a heavy price to pay for our return to the Lord, for our redemption, for our salvation. And we, in so many ways as a nation, as individuals, as a people, we too have been just like Israel. We have turned from God. We have rejected God. But God is giving us an opportunity to return. This lockdown, as I mentioned, it is a time of grace. But again, it is a time of hard grace. It is a time of hard mercy. It's a time that has stripped us of so much. It has stripped us of so many distractions. So many things that we thought were so important, so valuable to our life that we really couldn't live without. The conveniences, all the toys and the trappings and the distractions of life, they have been stripped from us. And the essentials, the necessities have been left. And what we have found to be true is exactly what Scripture declares to be true, that Jesus is the only answer. He has put us in a position where He is the only answer for the ills that we are going through as a culture Right now, I do not believe that God single-handedly, that he, he, that he personally orchestrated this COVID-19 crisis. I do not believe that. But one thing I do believe is that God is using this time of crisis to get the attention of his people. That people are returning to the Lord. And again, people say, well, does God really operate like that? Because what, what happens is if we don't view this as a time of grace, we cheapen the grace of God. This is a hard grace, but it is grace. I preached about six or seven weeks ago that the coming revival would not come in the pretty, uh, predictable, prepackaged way that church folk really thought that it should come. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Joshua? What I mean is most of the time Christians, when we think of revival, we think of it as something that can be you know, planned and prepared and that, that revival is always going on. We just have to orchestrate. That's not the case. For most Christians, we have this, this, this notion of revival being something where you schedule the guest speaker to come on that's well known and, and we schedule them to come in. We go through a powerful worship service. At the end of the message, we have 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes of a time up around an altar where, where hands are being laid on people. And, and listen, I'm not ridiculing that. I'm all about that. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But I want to tell you that true revival is about repentance and it is about humility. It is not about the song and dance. It is about coming to a place in your walk with the Lord where you understand that you have to humble yourself before a mighty God where you have to repent, where you have to confess and let God burn out all of the dross and all of the filth of your life. And after you are in a place of cleanliness before God and holiness and righteousness, all of these other manifestations, they are the blessing of God, but they in and of themselves are not the revival. Holiness and repentance and confession is what true revival is about. The days of God seemingly uh, caving into our heartfelt repentance uh, our, uh, this heartfelt repentance is over where people just come up with uh, you know, a half-hearted, namby-pamby confession. Those days are over. Those days were, are over where we just come in and we give God what, what, we, what we want to give Him, but we hang on to other things. Those days are over, church. They are over. God is getting the attention of His people. Our confession, uh, us being sold out to God, has got to be complete. It has got to be 100%. You are either all in or you are not in at all. 
That's where God is taking the church. God is using this time to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. And as the prophet Isaiah is speaking for Israel and crying out to God on their behalf, he is the spokesman. He is crying out to God on the behalf of his people. He is interceding for them. And in turn, God is responding to them through Isaiah. And and Isaiah, he sees God's people in, in Babylon. They had been invaded. They had been taken captive. And not only had they literally been removed and taken captive, they became captivated by the things of Babylon. Not only were they taken captive, but they were captivated by the lifestyle and by the filth and by the worldly way that Babylon was living. Isaiah 63 and 19 points this out. Babylon throughout Scripture was known for several things. Obviously sexual immorality. The Bible points out that it was a place full of arrogance. It was a place full of pride. It was a place full of idolatry and cruelty and greed. These were some of the the main things that, that personified what Babylon was about. And while these charges could possibly be leveled at any nation, just like they were leveled at Babylon in the Scripture, in so many ways it affects our nation. It affects us because we have been led astray. We have been led captive by the, by, by the enemy in so many regards. And not only led astray, but we too have been captivated by the same things that Babylon was led captive by. Even these things have, have crept into the church. They've captivated so many people even within the church. As a nation, we've taken concrete steps, unfortunately, to distance ourselves from biblical mandates and values. I think a lot of it can be traced all the way back to 1962. I think it was in 1962 when, when, when prayer in public schools was, was banned. And, and really, if you will look on a timeline of events, if you'll do some research, a lot of stuff can go back to that time. In 1962, prayer was removed. And then we go into the 1960s where we had the sexual revolution with free love. Skipping forward into 1973, we even see where abortion, uh, uh, Roe v. Wade, where it was, it was allowed in the rulings, it was allowed and so many millions of children have been, have been murdered on the altar of convenience and selfishness. We see that the homosexual agenda in more recent times has taken off to a level that, that, that many people are just giving over. They're tired of fighting, they're tired of even praying about it. They just accepted it as, a, as an okay lifestyle. And here's one for you that I was thinking about. What about debt? What about national debt? Not only national debt, what about the the debt of us as individuals? I'm not trying to throw stones at anybody, but but listen, our country right now, it is projected by the end of 2020, will be $30 trillion in national debt. Our government, $30 trillion in in debt. And the thing of it is, you, you can't even really visualize what a trillion dollars means. I mean... I'm sure there's a word, I don't know what it is, but it's almost as though they are inventing words now to describe the level of debt that we are in. They they almost have to invent words. A trillion dollars cannot even be imagined in the human mind. We can't see that. And, and, And it's beyond description, literally beyond description, the level of debt that we are in and that burden that has been placed on people. It's time to get out of debt. Sexual sins of every kind have been okayed. In America, we have people cohabitating together, playing house, playing family, but not really being a family. And on and on and on we could go. And I know there might be people upset with that kind of preaching because it seems like I might be coming at it from a somewhat negative angle. That's not my intent. That's not my purpose. I'm not trying to be negative in this thing. I agree that there has to be a balance, that there has to be the whole word rightly divided, the whole word rightly preached. But I want to tell you, I am tired of of a generation of preachers and a church culture that has done nothing but accommodating in their preaching and their pushovers in their preaching. We need some people that will finally stand up and say, thus says the Lord, and, and, and let the fallout happen that falls out. Because we have to preach truth with that in mind, there are some hard truths in Scripture. You see, there is, a, there is a good thing. You want some positive stuff right here? Here's a positive. A positive is that, yes, there is a heaven. That's positive. That God loves us, that if we will, by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, if we accept Him, we get to go to heaven. That is a positive truth. But there is also a negative truth, that there is a hell. That is also preached in the Scripture. 
And for all those that want the full gospel, you have to understand that both have to be preached, that both have to be admonished. Both the good and the bad are recorded in the scripture and they must be preached if the whole word is to be properly understood. There's a few quick points. Out of Isaiah, these chapters I mentioned, I want to give you this morning. Number one, and I'm going to be as quick as I can through these. Number one, one of the themes that is pointed out in these chapters that I mentioned is that the Israelites finally came to a place where they missed God. Where they said in and of themselves through Isaiah, where Isaiah is pleading to God. And, and again, Isaiah is pleading on the behalf of Israel. And he basically has this notion, he has this, uh, this heartfelt cry where he says, God, I miss you. I miss you. I don't know if you have ever truly missed somebody. Somebody that, that was in your life, that had a great impact in your life, that so, so ministered to you, that so greatly affected your whole being, and they're, they're gone for a while, and there's a longing, there is a missing. Do you miss God? Do you truly, honestly, in and of yourselves, and I'm going to ask you to take an inventory at home right now, sitting in front of your computer, sitting in front of your, your screens, your phones, do you miss God? Is there a longing in your heart where you say, God, I miss you? That's really what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 64 verse, uh, verse 1 where he said, oh God, if you would just come down. He was saying, God, I miss you. Isaiah back in 60, uh, chapter 63 verse 15, he even says, Lord, look down from heaven and see us. In other words, God, give us your attention. Look at our situation. Look at how things have happened. Look at the way we are right now. Pay attention, God. We miss you. Show up on the scene. Isaiah was inviting God into this prophetic playing out of events. He was inviting God to pay attention and to take notice. And as it was, it was like God at the time wasn't paying any attention. And Isaiah was saying, God, look at how bad things are. Just look and see. The same is true for us today, for you and for me. If we're going to experience this revival, this great awakening that all of us in our heart of hearts claim that we want, that we say that we want, if we're going to experience this in our homes, in our churches, in our region, in our state, in this nation, in this world, if we're going to really experience that, we have to ask God to come down and give us His holy gaze to come down and look at us and, 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 and don't just leave us here, but God, come down and pay attention at us. Look at us. Give us your attention. And when God comes, His holy gaze, when He gives you His attention, His gaze is going to expose things in your life, things that are wrong, small things. You know, we always want to repent of the big stuff. It's like this unspoken understanding where people know they have to repent of the big stuff. But what about the small things? The Bible talks about the small foxes, spoil the vine. What about the small things in your life? That when you invite the gaze of God to come down and look at you, where God comes in and He begins to expose the small things, even those things need to be repented of. God will not listen to a people who aren't serious about repentance. The simple fact of the matter is God cannot stand sin. Sin that has been tolerated, sin that has been played with, where, where we just have this notion that God winks at us and just kind of turns a blind eye. That is not true. God does not play with sin. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 17 through 18. It says some powerful truth here. This is what it says. It says, I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? Can that not be said right now? Can that not be said in the world in which we live? He goes on to say, And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they have wrought and that they have turned to other gods. That's a declaration of the Lord. This is God's policy. This is His policy. This is how He deals with regular practice, unrepented of sin in the lives of His people. And here's the thing. So many people might even be shocked that I would say that. Because we live in this time of grace 
And, and it has been preached in such a fashion that it is a cheap grace anymore. There was nothing cheap about the price that Jesus paid on the cross. I've had people tell me, well, God knew from before the world began that Jesus was going to die on the cross. Yes, he did, and that was part of his plan of redemption. But that did not mean that the stripes on his back were not painful. That did not mean that the suffering and the betrayal and the rebuke and the crown of thorns and the nails were not truly experienced and painful. It doesn't cheapen it just because he knew his love for us and his plan of redemption that he was going to do it for us. God, people have bought into this, this notion, and, and it's, it's true, but God may never stop loving us when we practice sin. We, we know that God's love is unconditional, that God will always love us, but He does withhold His acts of love toward us, which make us think we will never be loved again. You say, Josh, that's a hard truth. Well, this is exactly why Isaiah was feeling the way he felt. This is exactly why Isaiah prayed the way that he prayed because he knew that God was a loving God. He knew that God would not ultimately forsake them. But Isaiah was not experiencing the acts of God's love in his life or in the life of Israel. There was nothing about them that, that gave an indication that God loved him even though he really did. And people want to debate that God loves them in their sin. And again, truly God does love us unconditionally. But don't dare think that the knowledge, that that knowledge that God loves you replaces God's acts of love toward you. It is better to know and enjoy God's love. It's better to know both. Isaiah was looking for and he was longing for God to once again to to smile on them and rain down blessing on them and look at them and cast a gaze that gave them hope. You know, there is nothing more satisfying to a child than to see a smile on his or her parent's face as the, as the parent looks at them. The smile that a parent gives a child, it lets them know that everything's okay. It lets them know that there is love. It lets them know that there is a connection. It lets them know that, that what they're doing is acceptable and that everything is... All, there's nothing more pleasing to a child than to experience the smile of, of, of their parent. On the flip side, there's nothing more dreaded to a child than to experience the stern, solemn look of a parent looking at them. That too sends a signal in the opposite direction. But I pray that God would take notice of us from, from heaven and that he would come down and that as we repent of our sins, that we, we cry out to God for awakening and revival, that God would once again smile on his people. That he would look, that he would be accepting of us, that he would smile on his people. We have to miss the Lord. Number two, there's this idea that not only do we miss God, but we need God. You know, you can miss somebody but not really need them. No, we need God. Isaiah prophetically sees Israel coming to the realization that they need Israel. He, he, he foresees that in his prophecy, that they would come to the realization, that they would bottom out, so to speak, and come to a heartfelt realization that they need God. In Isaiah 63 and 64, he sees Israel in those chapters finally coming to that knowledge. We hear so much, we hear this expression used today about essential. In this COVID lockdown that we're experiencing, we hear things such as, you know, essential sectors of the economy, essential factories, essential jobs. Uh, some people even have to get letters from their employers um, to demonstrate and prove that they are essential to keep this economy going even like it is right now. And, and, there's truth in that, but here's what we got to understand, that if we really need God, we have to understand that God is essential. He is not a luxury. He is not something to be toyed with, that God is essential, that He is needed. The church is finally, by the grace of God, is finally waking up to the truth that we really need Him. I know that sounds like a simple statement. I know that sounds like a simple truth where everybody, maybe you're sitting at home and you say, well, Josh, yeah, obviously, no, do you really know it in your heart of hearts that people are coming to a desperate need of God? The fact of the matter is, it's taken a lot of pain. It's taken a lot of wreckage. It's taken a lot of brokenness to come to that place 
where people realize they need God. Where people get to this point to where they are desperate for God. Essential means it isn't going to happen without Him. If something is essential in your life, it means if that's, that thing that is essential stops, then life as you know it stops. We have to have God. He is essential. But here's the thing. There's so many people that don't really think that they need God. And when people think that they don't need God, a, a desperate thing happen, or a, a, a terrible thing can happen. And this is when your heart gets hard. You see, when there is a hard heart, two things happen. Two things happen. Isaiah 63 and verse 17 points out that when there is a hard heart, number one, people stray from God's ways, and number two, they no longer fear God. Those are the two things that will happen. Stray from His ways. In other words, they veer off course from the commands, from the direction that God gives. They no longer even care that they're off course. They get lazy with it. And after a loss of fear, when it goes from straying from God's commands, then people lose fear of God. When there isn't an immediate payment for the sin, that people lose fear of God. They think, well, God didn't really see it. God doesn't really know. Or, or, or maybe I'm at such a place of grace that sin really doesn't matter because, because I feel like I'm forgiven even though I'm not experiencing the blessing and the manifestation of God. So I don't really need to repent. After all, God loves me. And if that's your definition of grace, if that's your definition of how your walk with Christ is, then you are missing out on what a true, heartfelt, dynamic relationship with God is all about. If God's people actually feared God and were afraid of His judgment, they would save themselves so much trouble. They would save themselves so much trouble. Anytime these days someone preaches on fearing God, somebody is quick to point out scriptures about the love of God. And truly, we know the scripture says God is love. We know in 1 John it says that perfect love casts out fear. And I, and I agree with that. I understand that. But Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And the next thing somebody usually points out in that kind of a dialogue is they'll say, Well, yeah, Josh, you got to preach that in context. Well, here's the context for you. Jesus was talking to his disciples. He was preaching and teaching his disciples in that context. He wasn't talking to just the heathen sinner. He was talking to his disciples that were saved, that knew him, that longed for him. And the context was of Jesus preaching to this small church of disciples. He was instructing them to, to fear God because he has the ability, God has the ability to destroy the body and the soul by casting them into hell. So there's your context. Jesus wasn't preaching to heathens, he was instructing his disciples when he made those statements. The Bible points out that fear is the beginning of wisdom. It's just smart. It's just plain smart to fear God. With all that in mind, God graciously comes down and he gives us opportunities through his love. God gives us opportunities in the middle of this to repent. And here's the thing, if we don't take those opportunities of repentance, you know what God does? He simply removes himself out of the scene. You say, what? Yeah, God simply removes himself. You see, God will not stay where he is not wanted, where he is not invited. He won't stay there. That in and of itself, God's removing himself. That in and of itself is a form of judgment. When God removes himself from us and removes from us a desire to repent, that is a form of judgment. In this hour, God in his grace, in his awesome grace, in his mercy, in his love, he is once again giving his people and this world a chance to repent for fear to once again hit us. That is grace. It, it's a hard grace that we are experiencing. It's a hard mercy that we are experiencing, but that is part of grace. And if we don't take advantage of this time, God will get the picture. He'll understand we don't have a heart for it. And those that don't turn back to him wholeheartedly they will ultimately experience his wrath. Number three, I want to move quickly. 
is that there has to come a realization that I have sinned against you. And as the pastor declared in the uh, commercial earlier, hopefully you saw that in an earlier part of the service, there has to be an acknowledgement that we have sinned against God, but also a time of confession, a time of repentance. Why did God remove His presence from, from people's lives? It's because people sin against Him and they don't truly repent. They might give lip service repentance, but it's not a heartfelt repentance. The Bible points out in verse 7 of Isaiah 64 that God hid his face. This is what it says, that he hid his face from Israel because of their sin. And I want to tell you, God has not changed. He still hides his face. We no longer get that, that smiling gaze from God like I preached earlier. We no longer get that. God hides his face. And people go through their lives, they go through the motions with half of the truth in that, yes, God loves us unconditionally, but they think that that's as good as it gets. No, we need God's gaze of acceptance and blessing on our lives. The truth of the matter is people might as well stop talking about revival. They might as well stop talking about great awakenings and healing of the land if they're not truly going to repent, if they're not truly going to confess their sins and turn from, from a, a lifestyle of sin. You see, this confession, it is a type of preparation for the coming king. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, in ancient times in the Middle East, whenever a king wanted to visit a region that, that he had control over, he would send a messenger out in front of him. Days, weeks, months even if necessary. He would send a messenger out in front announcing that he was coming. That he was coming through the area. And he was letting the people know. And this announcement would give the people time to prepare for his coming. Time to prepare the way. The Bible points out in Isaiah, he talks about this, that they would fill. They would literally go and they would fill up any kind of valleys that would be in the way. That they would level down the high terrains. That they would level them down and make it flat. That they would straighten out any crooked parts of the road. And that they would remove any kind of obstacles that might obstruct the king's coming to, to be with them, to visit with them. And when the highway was ready, here's what would happen. When the highway was ready, then the king would come. And can I tell you the same is true if we're going to experience a visit from King Jesus in our lives. Each of us has valleys, these low places, uh, if we're not careful, of unconfessed sin, disgusting, vile, unconfessed sin, the low things of life. We have to confess them and raise them up. We have high places of pride and arrogance in our lives that have to be brought low. We have crooked places in our lives where we've gotten off track of the truth of the Word of God that have to be on the straight and narrow. Now, we've got to straighten that stuff out with the Word of God. These stones represent the stones of lust and envy and resentment and greed and anger and all kinds of other things. These little obstacles that get in the way of us encountering King Jesus. we got to get rid of that. we got to move them out of the way. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 and 5 declares, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This was a call of repentance because John the Baptist even quoted this very Isaiah text. You can find it in Luke 3. John quoted from Isaiah and it was a call of repentance. That's what John the Baptist was known for. His ministry was a ministry of a call to repentance of the people. And he was announcing the way to make straight the way for the coming king and Jesus came. And the same call is going out to us today. It's going out to us today. I'm making the call. Make straight the way. Fill up the valleys. Tear down the high places. Straighten out the crooked stuff. Get rid of all these obstacles of lust and envy and resentment and anger and greed. And on and on and on and on we can go. Whatever kind of descriptive thing you want to put in there. Get rid of it. We're all like an unclean thing according to Isaiah 64 and verse 6. And here's the thing. If if even the best of us, if even the best of us is like an unclean thing, then what is the worst of us really like to God? 
If the best of us is vile and disgusting in our, in our, in our sin, unrepented of sin, then what is the best of us, or the worst of us really look like? Number four, this is my final point, and then I'll be bringing things to a close. Isaiah gets to this point to where he, he, he cries out in desperation where he begs God to come down. Now, when people think of beggars maybe or, or begging for something in their life, people say, oh, well, that's abasing yourself. That's, that's pathetic. I would never beg for anything. That's pathetic. I would never do that. That's below me. Well, if that's your attitude, then you really don't have a longing for God. Many people think, well, I would never, I would never beg for anything from God. That's pathetic. That's, that's a small thing to do in prayer. But we really need to do, we really do need to get to a place that where we long for to where we are, to, to where we realize how desperate we are for God. How desperate we are for God. And we beg Him if need be. And that's through prayer. That's through prayer. That may not be a, a great definition of prayer. But when you get into a place of prayer of, of when the Spirit is interceding and He is pleading things on your behalf, your, your heart's condition is such that you are telling God, God, I beg you, if you don't do this, I am done. I am over. And that's just the kind of heartfelt prayer that we have to have. Someone that is begging for something, it is passionate. It is a passionate plea. It is a heartfelt plea. And that's prayer. Psalm 145, verses 18 through 19. It addresses a lot of my points that I've made this morning in these powerful verses. Listen to what it says. It says, The Lord is near to those who call upon Him. To all that call upon Him in truth. It's conditional. It has to be in truth. It can't be some kind of half-hearted thing. It can't be a false, you know, some kind of a pretense where you come in prayer just for show or to make yourself feel good or to impress somebody else and, and give lip service and go through some kind of religious... No, 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 no. It has to be in truth. It has to be honest. He goes on to say that he will fulfill the desire. Listen to what he says. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. There it is. There is a fear of God. There needs to be a, not just a holy reverence, but an understanding that He is the God of God. There, there's no other God beside Him. He is that awesome. He is that powerful. And that should, should in, in a sense, make you afraid. He goes on that He will also hear their cry. Their, and this is, I interjected this, their passionate prayer. If someone is crying for something, there is passion behind that. There is desperation for that. And he goes on and he says, and, and that he would save them. That's the condition. This kind of prayer isn't some kind of anemic, weak, polite, dignified kind of a request. No, this is, this is a desperate, passionate plea. It is a crying out to God which fights to take hold of God and says, I'm not going to let go until you answer me. Are you there? Am I there? Are we as a church there? Are we as a country there? We need to get there. It involves pleading God's promises before Him and refusing to take no for an answer. All throughout uh, the Isaiah chapters that I mentioned earlier, I, that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. He is, he is reminding God of promises. He is reminding God of the things that he said. And, and he, they are the promises. And Isaiah is pleading those promises to God and, and, and expecting God to answer the way God said he would. That's how we are to do that. We must have that kind of pleading in the church through prayer, through desperate cries to the Lord. You cannot take hold of God without an intense longing. And if you don't have a longing for God, that should say something to you. That should speak to your heart. The people who really did business with God in the Scripture were those that longed for Him. Just go down the list. Moses, Hannah when she was desperate for a son, 
Nehemiah, on and on and on. We can go with all kinds of Bible characters that we see. But revival, awakening in your heart, corporately, regionally, statewide, nationally. I am believing for it in the name of Jesus. It's going to happen. Even recently, in the last six, seven weeks, there has been just untold demonic things come against this nation, against families within this church. It's an attack. He's trying to stop. He's trying to stifle the voice of the church. He's trying to stop the voice of God's children. We're not going to stop. We're not going to stop. We're going to cry aloud. We are going to see revival. We're going to see a nation turned around. We're going to see a region turned around. We're going to see people saved. We're going to see people filled with the Holy Ghost. I sense this. I hope you sense this at home. I hope you are agreeing with me at home. We're going to see this. Revival. Great awakening. It's going to mess up your schedule. It's it's going to throw things off. Listen, you... You should already expect the unexpected in terms of this COVID lockdown. Everybody's schedule's messed up already. We're, we're dealing with it. We're living with it. It's going to be okay if God messes up your schedule some, isn't it? It's going to mess things up, but that's okay. God is moving. He's getting the attention of His people. And for too long, the church and Christians, we've given lip service to wanting revival, but secretively... We've not given God their all for fear that God might inconvenience them. For fear that God might want something out of them that they really don't want to do. We've got to get a heartfelt cry where we say, God, if I'm inconvenienced, if my life is rocked, if things are shaken, just as they're being shaken right now, the Bible says everything that can be shaken will be shaken. God is shaking things up for our good. It is a hard grace It is a hard mercy that we are experiencing right now, but it is grace and mercy, church. It is grace and mercy. In closing, I want to say this. What God is wanting to do in this season, I really believe we're getting ready to... I believe in my heart. These last several months have been a season, a call to repentance, and I really believe in my heart of hearts that we're getting ready to enter into another season very soon. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow where things go back to a sense of normalcy, some. It it may not be exactly the way things were before, and that's okay. Thank God for that. But we may go back to a, a sense, to some degree, of normalcy. Do, hear me now, hear my heart. Because God gives a reprieve from that pressure, don't, don't think, well, okay. Things are no, I can relax now and go back to the way things were. God's going to be watching. He's going to be gazing down from his throne to see if the things that we prayed, we declared in this time of repentance, if when the pressure is taken off some, and we got, we got some of our freedoms back, we got some of our normalcy back to see what you do with that heartfelt repentance. Are you going to go back to the way things were before COVID? Or are you going to let God transform you and do something new and go on to a powerful, dynamic relationship with the Lord from here forward? It's going to be a test where God, where God steps back to see how we respond. That's the next season. Then the season after that, well, it could be a time of judgment. It could be a time when the Lord just raptures the church. But regardless, the time is short. How bad do things have to get before God's people will be driven to their knees like never before? I heard on a report just the other day that said uh, the abortion industry is considered to be essential in this time. So the murder of children is essential is what what we have said. Church, does it get any worse than that? I also heard the other day that there was a report that said the pornography industry because of this lockdown and people's access to internet and so on and so forth, the pornography uh, industry, the the views and things online has just skyrocketed. Skyrocketed during this time. On and on and on we could go with different things. How bad do things have to be before the church steps up? 
This is a time of grace, as I said. It's a time of hard grace. But realize, Christ's words to His church, God says, I know your works. God says, I know your works. Listen, we're not saved by works. If you're at home right now, amen me. If you're on your computer, Facebook, amen me. We're not saved by works, but the Bible does point out that we are saved unto good works. There is a good work for us to do. And this is not the time for the church to just sit back in repentance and say, oh, thank heaven I'm saved and I'm going. And no, this is the time to step up like never before. God is not going to tolerate failure anymore. He's not going to tolerate these excuses of failure anymore. Well, I'm just not good enough. I'm not. No, no, no. Listen, God's called you. He's equipped you. He's tired of the excuses. Failure, failure is not an option anymore. Why? Because He's equipped you. He has given you everything you need to be a success at what He has called you to do. It's that simple. The season that we're in requires humility on our part. Humility comes with longing for God. There's the key verse that, that all revival preachers talk about, 2 Chronicles 7:14, and it gives off these conditions. And the main condition I want to point out, it says that if my people will humble themselves and pray. This is a time of humility. This is a time of humility. This is a time of desperate cry for God. We have to be persistent in our prayers. If God answered all of our requests immediately, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't value His answers. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't value the persistency that it takes. We would take it for granted. We have to be persistent in this. It's got to be a prayer that demonstrates that we mean business and that we value His blessings and that we value His answers of us no matter the cost. We got to be persistent. In this season of hard grace, let's seek God for revival, true revival and repentance in our own lives. Let's seek God for lost souls. Let's seek God to seek Him in holiness and purity and righteousness. And I would simply declare to you today come and meet us, Lord. Lord, if you would just come down as Isaiah prayed in chapter 64, verse 1. Just come down, God. I want to pray a prayer of closing. Father, I've preached my heart out. I've preached what I felt like you gave me, Lord. I know your word will not go out void. And God, right now, right now, this very instant, God, I pray that as people are in their homes and they're watching online and maybe they're going to watch later on a recording, God, I pray that this, this word, your word would grip their hearts and minds, God. We miss you. We need you. We have sinned against you. And God, we plead for you. We have to have you. These are some of the things that Isaiah cried out. And this is the cry of the church. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would bless your people. Keep them safe. Keep them whole. And God, we look forward to being in service together next Sunday. Your will be done in Jesus' name.